Amen. <clears throat> well, as I'm thinking about my message here, the title of my message, Chosen for a Purpose. We're all chosen for a purpose. You know, our society, our whole world is uh, really, uh, a f- uh, you know, like the advertising. Our whole world is about things, about buying and selling. That's how the economies work. And our whole world is fixed on buying and selling, and so all of society is all about trying to get you to buy stuff. And so like when you're driving over the cities, and now we have the social media, but when you think about it, think about all of the, uh, the ways that this world is trying to get us to buy stuff. And uh, I've heard like Pastor Paul preaching in the past and talking about how it's all designed to make us discontent with what we have and to want more. And, uh, you know, so this gives us, automatically gives us a feeling that uh, our life could be more. And, you know, so for culture and society, life, there's always a craving that life could be more. And I think that the enemy does that within our souls as it is, let alone everything we see visually around us. You know, we always have this thing, life could be more. You know, and... Some of us, you know, some of you have maybe accomplished a few big things in life. And maybe life has even been pretty good. I think that we can say that for the most part in Canada, in Alberta, in the, in the last 50 years that we've lived here, life has been pretty good. But you know, the only way for us to truly really experience our greatest life is to live a life that our maker has designed for us to live. It's the only way. And, you know, what does that look like? The details are different for each one of us. And uh, every one of us has a different path in life to walk. But we will only discover it when we encounter the relationship with our creator, the one who chose and designed each one of us for a purpose. The enemy of our soul actually has many people convinced, many believers convinced, with the lie that they have little or, or have anything to offer. And that's a lie. Some are convinced by the lies that they don't have time. Or they feel like they have no purpose at all, even in life in itself. You know, if you have breath, you have very much to offer when it comes to the kingdom of God. And really in life, period. You know, think back to the Garden of Eden. God spoke everything into existence, but he formed mankind in the image of himself. You know, we are his image bearers. We have to ask ourselves a question, what does it really mean for us to be made in God's image? John Piper offers us great insight, and he says, imagine... Uh, the image of God is not so much in something that man has, but it, rather it is something that man is. Mankind was created to be a graphic image of the creator, a formal, visible, and understandable representation of who God is and what he's really like. Among many things, being an image bearer means that God created us with a purpose of having an intimate love relationship with himself with him, us with him. And unlike the animals in Genesis 1.24, we are not made according to their kind. 
Genesis 1.24 says that then God said, let the earth produce every kind of animal, each producing offspring of the same kind, livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, and wild animals, and that is what happened. Human beings were created in God's image. We were made to have a relationship with our creator and resemble him. In his book, What's Best Next, Matt Perman states, my mistake was not or was in not realizing that the purpose of my life had already been defined. You don't get to choose your purpose. It has already been defined for you, and it's the same for everyone. There are a thousand different ways that we can say it, and we all need to state it in a way that is unique to ourselves, but in the essence is it's the same for everyone. Rick Warren, he says it like this. He says, the search for the purpose of life has puzzled people for thousands of years. That's because we typically begin at the wrong starting point, ourselves. Contrary to what many popular books, movies, seminars tell you, you won't discover your life's meaning by looking within yourself. You probably tried that already, Warren says. You didn't create yourself. So there's no way that you can tell yourself what you were created for. God has stated the purpose of life throughout the Bible in dozens of different ways. The word of God uses, uh, uses to describe it can differ, uses to describe it or can differ, but the essence is always the same. The purpose of life is to know God, enjoy God, reflect his glory back to him, and do this in community with others through Jesus Christ. And essentially, Jesus himself is the purpose of life. He says in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Simply put, we find our purpose for life when we come into relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not something we can accomplish in our own power. God himself pursues us and he goes to incredible lengths to draw us. So we must pay attention and respond when he is drawing us. Today, Jesus, he might have said it like this. Hey, everyone, I'm telling you this under the authority of God who made the heavens and the earth. The plan and missions, mission has not changed. It's way bigger than just making it through 80 to 90 years of life without totally messing everything up. Listen up. Go reproduce yourselves in the lives of others. Go create more image bearers, people that have, in, uh, have a relationship with God the Father. Go and make more Christians. Fill this earth with people like yourselves and lead them to faith in me. I am with you and I'm going to give you the power to do this. In essence, Jesus restates God's original mission that was given to Adam and Eve. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is your primary mission. Even as a family unit, it's our primary mission. It's what we need to teach our kids and keep teaching our kids. And uh, I can say that, you know, I probably didn't do the best job at that. As far as keep teaching our kids, our mission is to reach the lost, is to be a witness, is to be a light. But this is our mission. And even as a family unit, is it our mission? Go and make more learners of Jesus. You may be thinking, but we have a life to live. The kids have activities and we have jobs. What are we supposed to do? Just drop everything and go and start knocking door to door and telling people about the gospel? 
You know, we just finished our time of fasting and prayer here at the church. And it's at times like this where, you know, as we're making a sacrifice, you know, to the Lord, fasting and praying and taking time out of everything, dropping everything aside and just taking time to seek him, that God tends to seek, uh, to speak just a little bit clearer. You know, and uh, as you're thinking about, okay, how do I do this? You say, you know, okay, if we're not supposed to quit our jobs, and everything else in life, then how can we lead our families to fulfill this great commission? Like, we're busy. We've got busy schedules. We've got commitments. You know, there's good questions that we can ask ourselves about that. Why did God put us in the neighborhoods that he's put us in? Because it says that he's created the boundaries, that he's put people where he wants us. You know, why are we working in the places of employment that we're working in? And why are our children on the sports teams that they're on? You know, we're surrounded every day by people who need to hear about the saving work of Jesus Christ. They're not only, they not only need to hear about it, his love, but they need desperately to experience his love through us and our families. And that is why God has planted you where you are, with your interests, with your gifts, and with your resources. You know, God planted me uh, in, when we were in Bentley in the church there, and we were so busy in the church, and the last thing that we were, uh, had on our mind was to be involved in the community. We were so quite inward focused, but busy, busy, busy with the church and all the stuff in the church, which is a good thing, and I think that we need to do that for the people, the converts that are coming in to get people grounded and established, but we've got to do a little gathering too. And so God planted me, like we had little problems in the church in Bentley, and that church just sort of dissipated, and then all of a sudden I found that I had lots of time on my hands, and I had an opportunity, the, uh, the community reached out to me and asked if I would coach a hockey team, and I thought, okay, I can do that, I got lots of time to do stuff now like that, never had a moment to do anything like that before that, so I thought, okay, I'll go and I'll coach these boys, and uh, these boys, they were so rough and tough and undisciplined and uncontrolled that the coach the previous year quit because he couldn't control these kids. And so I was walking into this change room for the first practice on a Tuesday. And I was walking by and there was a group of moms that were huddled. As, and I was, as I'm walking by, one of the moms says, oh, Mark, I'm sorry that you're getting yourself into this. And I didn't have a clue what she was talking about. I was just going in there to coach this nice young bunch of boys. Well, I had no idea, and then so our, our practice was Tuesday. Our first game was Friday, and uh, things were good, you know. Everybody was dressed up, ready to get on the ice, and uh, as soon as they dropped the puck, it was like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. These kids just went nuts. Like, I mean, it was an amazing thing to see from what I saw, because our practice and working with them, they're pretty nice boys and everything else, but as soon as they dropped that puck, these kids were starting just swearing. They were trying to hurt the other team. They were getting penalties like crazy. And they'd get penalties and they'd go into the penalty box and they'd just throw their stick, kick the wall and swear and sit down and cry. They were so mad. And uh, they were taking fits when they'd get penalties and they were calling the ref names, going after him like just, you know, verbally. I couldn't believe what I was seeing with these kids. And I thought, what is going on here? And uh, so like I was just shocked and I'd never coached before. So I'm just sort of standing there bewildered. And 
we ended up, we got less guys on our bench and way more people in the penalty box. And I'm thinking, you know, what, what do you do with a situation like this? Well, I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing and what was going on. And, and you know, uh, after the first game, the team that we were playing, they dropped out of the league. And then they called a big uh, league meeting. And uh, in that first game, we had more minutes and penalties than most of the teams would get in the whole year just in that first game. And uh, the league meeting was called, and they were wanting to kick our team out of the league. And I asked them to give me some time with these kids. You know, I can I'll straighten them out. I said, well, I'm just going to need some time. And they really didn't want to give us time. They wanted to get rid of this team because of the reputation they had even the year before. But luckily, you know, uh, the manager at the Bentley Arena was the coach of uh, the very same league, uh, like we would play them eventually. But uh, he was uh, working at the arena in Bentley. He was coaching a team in Lacombe that he had two boys on. And he spoke up for me. He says he's been watching us. And he says, you know, let's give them a chance because I'm watching them. He's doing good things with these kids. And so they let us stay in the league. And for the first half of the season, it was touch and go because we didn't stop getting penalties in the second game. You know, like it, it took a process to get these kids settled down. But they did learn that as they carried on like that, they were spending more time in the, between the penalty box and the bench. They weren't getting onto the ice a lot. And so they gradually, they started to simmer down a little bit. And uh, as time went on, they learned that they weren't going to get ice time and stuff. So they started to get a little bit more controlled. And, uh, and I just stayed consistent with these kids. And I didn't get mad at any of them for their, all their shenanigans that were going on. I just stayed consistent. You do this, this is the consequence. And uh, I, first thing I did was I called, called all the coaches and I had them cancel all the games on the Sundays. And I said, you know, well, let's rebook it. I says, we'll book into the week or we'll book it on Saturday. I said, but we're not going to be playing on Sundays because we've got kids on the team that go to church. And uh, there was a couple of coaches that didn't want to do that. And I said, you know, that's okay. We can just forfeit those points to you if you want to. And they oh, okay, we'll put it on another night. And they did. We never played Sunday games uh, during the league and stuff. I made these kids get wet, dressed up and wear ties to the games. And I got them team jackets. And we bought them all new uniforms. And so these kids began to feel pretty good about themselves. When they'd walk into the arenas, they looked really pretty sharp. And I wouldn't allow them to complain, say one thing to the ref. We had captains and assistants that could, but they could say it decently. And I wouldn't allow them to swear. So they did any of this stuff, they sat on the bench. And they tested, and it would go like we'd be able to go about three games real good, and then it would be like the fourth game was just an all-out game, and back on the bench they'd go. But it was a good thing. At the end of the year, I lined up a big tournament in Vancouver. So we're going from this little town in Bentley to uh, a big 40-team tournament in, in Vancouver. I remember thinking, you know, like when we went into the, the tournament there, at the very beginning of the open ceremonies at this tournament, they opened that tournament in prayer. And I thought, wow. And I noticed that the staff, the people working around the tournament were really friendly. And I thought, you know, this is where the church needs to be. The church needs to be working out in the community, rubbing shoulders with people like this and the kids. And, and uh, I was just thinking that it was such a good thing. So by now these kids, I've had them for a season. And, and we're in this tournament in Vancouver. And, uh, you know, the refs would come by our bench a couple of times, come by and say, my, you got a nice team. <laughs> and I was thinking, if you only knew. 
you know, we never won that tournament. I tell you, you know, if I was a better coach, it was the first year for me coaching, but a better coach, we would have won that tournament. But I'm not going to go into reasons why we didn't, but, you know, we never won the tournament, but we won the most sportsmanlike trophy. And uh, that really blessed me. And I thought, man, what? A, I was so proud of those kids. And it's amazing what kids will do for somebody who shows uh, an interest in them and respects them. You know, like I could see why, uh, you know, maybe the coach quit the year before. He probably just got so frustrated and so mad because these guys were so out of control. But, but I don't know. I just had a way with these kids and I just showed them respect and I loved them and I just stayed consistent, never got mad at them. This is just a consequence of your actions. And it was just, it was an awesome thing. God gave me favor and it was a neat thing, a great experience. And so through that year, my number one thing was to point these kids to Jesus. And then to teach them discipline for themselves and respect and respect and, you know, towards other people. And I shared the gospel with every one of them through that season. And uh, even as a team, I took them out and uh, we did an event that was Christ-based. I don't know what the parents thought of all this because I know there's some of the parents on the team were not Christians and were a little bit antagonistic towards Christianity, but it was amazing. They were all for it. I think probably because they could see the fruit that was happening with these kids, how good these kids were feeling about themselves, and so they let their kids go, and their kids heard the gospel that year for the next couple of years. You know, your mission, it'll look different from mine because your, the, uh, the people in your circle need your influence, not mine. And the enemy is out to divert our attention ever so slightly to the neighbor, uh, neighborhood's amenities or for us to climb these corporate ladders of success or uh, our kids' ability to get a scholarship one day. You know, the thing is that when these things become our main focus and accumulating more of them becomes the priority in our lives, then just maybe we won't see the needs of the people sitting beside us or living around us. You know, when uh, we become so consumed by these so many things around us, you know, we miss a lot of things that are happening around us. You see, we're all called by God to live a life that he has set out for us to do. We're all called for a purpose. He has created and chosen each one of us for a purpose. Ephesians 1.11 says, For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things that he planned long ago. We're all called by God. Every person on the face of the earth is called by God to come and repent of their sins, to take up their cross daily and follow him in the purpose that he has had in mind for them since the beginning of time. Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by a story of a king who prepared a great wedding feast for his son. When the banquet was ready, he sent out his servants to notify those who were invited, but they all refused to come. So he sent out other servants to tell them the feast has been prepared. The bulls and fattened cattle have been killed and everything is ready. Come to the banquet. But the guests he invited ignored them and went their own way, one to his business, another to his farm. Others seized the messengers and insulted them and killed them. 
The king was furious and he sent out his army to destroy the murderers and burn their town. And he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready and the guests I invited aren't worthy of the honor. Now go to the street corners and invite everyone you see. So the servants brought in everyone they could find, good and bad alike, and the banquet hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to meet the guests, he noticed a man wasn't wearing the proper clothes for a wedding. Friend, he asked, how is it that you are here without wedding clothes? But the man had no reply. Then the king said to his aides, bind his hand and hands and feet and throw him out into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus ends this illustration with saying, for many are called, but few are chosen. Those who are responding to the call of God are those who are chosen by God to live out the purposes that he has for their lives. This is really an amazing thing when you think about it. As I was praying through this and the preparation part of doing this message, you know, I thought about my, my life and I was thinking, you know, like I've been hearing God asking for more commitment these days. And uh, at least that's what I'm sensing in my spirit. But, you know, it's what I'm hearing others saying at the same time. I hear people saying how important it is to be committed in their walk with Jesus and how that they've been uh, taking so much for granted in their lives. And I think that as the things that we've been going through the last couple of years, we've all noticed that a lot of the stuff that we've just taken for granted and... uh, You know, I see people changing the priorities of their lives and responding to the call of God to make him and his will the priority for their lives. And I've been asking myself, am I responding when God is calling me to action? You know, we were praying this morning and it was mentioned, you know, that even as pastors, you know, we can get just quite uh, content sitting in our office and say we're doing the work of the ministry but you know we also are to go out and make disciples we're not uh, excused from that because we're pastors and you know like we can just sort of rub it off rub off the conviction and just say we're doing the work you know of the ministry because we're in the church all week long but we are have a responsibility as well that we need to heed to as pastors and be aware and listen to what the spirit's saying because we're no different than any of you you know god is calling us all he's got a purpose for all of us we cannot allow the doubts of others in our world to distract us from the purposes that god has uniquely chosen us for we are all called Everyone in this room this morning is called by God to live out his purposes in your life. We're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians, and uh, we see Paul here commending these people for doing just that, just what I've been talking about. They were chosen by God to live out uh, the Christ-like life during an incredibly intense time of persecution, and that's exactly what they were doing. They knew their purpose before God was to live as children of the light and were so committed and willing to pay with the price of their life if that's what it took. So Paul, as he's writing to them, we start in verse four here and it says, we know dear brothers and sisters that God loves you and has chosen you to be his own people. You know, when we're reading the word, we can put ourselves into this. You know, we can say, you know, we know, dear brothers and sisters, I'm speaking to you right now, that God loves you and he's chosen you uh, to be his own people. 
For when we brought you the good news, it was not only by words, but also with the power of the Holy Spirit that gave full assurance that what we said was true. And you know of our concern for you from the way that we lived our lives when we were with you. So you received the message with joy from the Holy Spirit in spite of the severe suffering it brought you. In this way, you imitated both us and the Lord. As a result, you have become an example to all the believers in Greece and throughout Macedonia and Achaia. And now the word of the Lord is ringing out from you to people everywhere, even beyond Macedonia and Achaia, for wherever we go, we find people telling us about your faith in God. We don't need to tell them about it. How awesome would that be if everywhere the people went in the world, they could hear just little chirps of Livingstone's church and their faith in God. For they keep talking Uh, They keep talking about the wonderful welcome you gave us and how you turned away from idols to serve the living and true God. And they speak of how you are looking forward to the coming of the Son of Man, from the Son from heaven, God's Son from heaven, Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. He is the one who has rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. It is obvious that the Thessalonians' response to the preaching of the gospel constituted indisputable proof of their salvation. They were not only able to stand under this incredible persecution, the word of God rang out from them, everywhere from them. Paul says, for when we brought you the good news, it was not only the words, uh, with words, but it was also with the power of the Holy Spirit that gave full assurance that what we said was true. You know, this word assurance here, it's, uh, it, it means to be completely certain of the truth of something, to be absolutely sure, complete certainty. Uh, it's a supernatural knowing in our hearts when we have this assurance of our salvation, you know, that we know that we know. Like, I know that I know that I am a child of God. There's no doubt in my mind about it. And that is a supernatural assurance that God has put there the day that I invited the Holy Spirit to come into my life and Jesus to be Lord. You know, he is my Lord and he's my Savior and no one can take that from me. The assurance that I have deep in my soul is a supernatural knowing that I am God's possession through who Jesus is and what he's done to make that possible. Do you have that assurance this morning? It's a good question because we should all have that assurance. It's a supernatural impartation that God puts within us. It's like uh, he sealed the deal with the Holy Spirit that he sent. You know, I was working in construction Uh, when I received this supernatural assurance. At the Red Deer College was expanding at the time I was in construction and I was working on a concrete, finishing a concrete floor in the one evening. And at the same time, they had meetings going on over here at the uh, Cambridge Hotel. It used to be called the Capri. And I took off uh, a couple hours from work and I met Karen over there. And, you know, I always grew up hearing that if I believed in Jesus, I would go to heaven. And so I believed in Jesus, and so I just automatically thought I was a Christian. But, you know, Scripture says that the, the devil believes and trembles. And so it's more than just saying, okay, I believe in Jesus. That night, you know, as we were going through that meeting, it come to a close, and uh, the speaker had three questions. And he says, you know, uh, he spoke his message. And then he says, are you a Christian? And I thought, yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. He says, do you know for sure beyond the, uh, uh, he says, do you know for sure 
beyond a doubt that you're a Christian. And I thought, well, yeah, because I believe in Jesus. He says, if you were to die right this second, do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you would go to heaven? And I thought, boy, I don't know. I can't say as I do know for sure. And uh, then he read Revelation 3.20. He says, Jesus says, listen, I'm standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to you and eat with you and you with me. And then he says, if your heart is pounding right now, he says, that's Jesus knocking on your heart's door and wanting to come into your life. And I'll tell you, my heart was pounding so hard that night that it felt like it was going to jump right out of my chest. And that evening, you know, I didn't know it, but I walked into that place and I walked in there basically as a dead man. Like I walked in there spiritually dead. But when I left that place, I was born of the Spirit and I walked out of there a new man. And I, was, you know, I had Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit living within me. I had this assurance that Paul's talking about here that came with the power of the Holy Spirit and gave them the assurance to believe what he said was true. And uh, Paul says here, he says, for the Holy Spirit gave you full assurance that what we said was true. That evening, for the first time, I experienced this supernatural assurance that Paul's talking about. It so drastically changed the direction of Karen and my life. You know, it, from that moment on, our lives had never been the same. You know, should people see a difference in our lives when this happens to us, when we become when filled with the Spirit, and all of a sudden we're alive in the Spirit? You know, what difference did becoming a Christian make in your life? When you became a Christian, did it make a difference? Has everyone, anyone ever asked you what's happening in your life? What's happened? You know, what's the change? When Paul preached to the Thessalonians, he didn't just share human opinion or philosophy. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5 says that when I first came to you, and he's talking about the Corinthians, but he's saying the same kind of thing with the Thessalonians. He says, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words or impressive wisdom to tell you the gospel, or the, God's secret plan. But rather, his message was marked with power. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes. The Holy Spirit brought this truth home to their hearts in Thessalonica. And I believe that he's bringing it home to the hearts of his people here this morning. And Jesus tells his followers that the whole, when the Holy Spirit comes, he would convict the world of sin and of God's righteousness, and the coming judgment. Paul's message was marked by his own certainty that the message would change their lives just as it had radically changed his. Paul, Silas, and Timothy lived their lives consistent with their message when they were in Thessalonica. He says, you know how we lived among you when, for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. You know, this is what we hope to see happening in our mentorship or discipleship ministry, really in any ministry that's going on in the church anywhere there's leadership involved. You know, leaders and, and teachers in the church were to follow God's example, Jesus' example, and those uh, in the leaders care, you know, people that are, are ministering with us. Uh, they should be able to follow our example. And they, in turn, what happens is they become models of Christ-likeness to the people outside of the church. And it was the manner 
It was the manner of Christ in Paul, Silas, and Timothy which helped inspire the Thessalonians to live like this and to follow Christ because of the way that they conducted themselves. And it's a reminder to all of us that it is the image of Jesus in us, the way we model him. This is what's going to attract people to Jesus. And we need to stir this up within us. We really need to stir this up within us. We need to spur each other on to live like this, to live like Jesus lived. You know, this is our purpose as men and women of Christ. You know, a year later after this, uh, I received this assurance, after I made Jesus Lord of my life, not a lot of exterior change had gone on in my life. We had not really got established or committed uh, anywhere uh, to grow, be growing spiritually too aggressively at this time yet. But that following summer, 21 young people got saved in one summer. And they started a small Bible study for them. And Karen and I went out to this Bible study. And uh, I've never forgotten that night because, you know, I'd been saved a year. And I had still, I was still drinking and still smoking and still swearing. And I was still doing the drugs. And we were still going out to parties. And I remember going out to this Bible study with these 21 young people who were all sitting in this big circle, and I thought, I remember thinking, boy, I've been, just felt so bad inside, thinking I've been saved a year and I've got nothing to offer these young people. It made such an impact in me that from then on I began to change. Like, I'll tell you, I am so far from uh, having the right things happening in my life in every area, but that day I made a change. I began to change the things in my life that were not right. I started to go through the frustration of trying to quit these habits of swearing and the addictions of smoking and the drinking. And I, you know, I would grab my cigarettes and I'd fire them out the window. And I'd grab Karen's cigarettes and I'd fire them out the window. i said, that's it, we're quitting. And such an easy going, she had to be an easy going. God knew I needed an easy going wife. She wouldn't say nothing, you know, she'd just sit there. But I think she just knew that half an hour down the road we'd be stopping to buy more cigarettes. <laughs> because she knew how addicted I was to it. You know, but saying all of this, I felt bad that I never had anything, felt like I never had anything to offer these kids. And it convicted me to the, to the point where I've, ever since then, I've always felt like I need to be an example to everybody around me. At, at work, you know, wherever I go, and to my kids, I just need to be an example. And this is how Paul and Silas and Timothy affected the Thessalonian church. The outstanding fruit of the gospel was the Thessalonians' change in behavior. They became imitators of their spiritual parents, the missionaries, Paul and Silas and Timothy. And they went on from there to imitate Jesus' example. And this is the way it works for all of us as we live out this life in our world. You know, Scripture, the Proverbs says that as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. And, you know, a new Christian they come into the church and they look to the other believers to, as a pattern for their life. But then as they mature, you know, they realize that people are a little bit flawed and then they turn their attention, you know, hopefully we're pointing their attention to Jesus. He's the one that we need to have the example for our lives. With good mentorship, like in our discipleship ministry here at the church or Stephen ministry or any other area of ministry, uh, but uh, the mentorship with new believers, you know, hopefully they're trained to aspire to look to Jesus as their example of, for uh, modeling their lives. Uh, Peter says, for God called you to do good, even if it means to su suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. 
You are, uh, he is your example and you must follow his steps, in his steps. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he pointed to these, about, uh, toward these Macedonians as a model of sacrificial giving. He wrote that they had given money to help other believers even though they themselves were poor. In this revealing test, the Thessalonians, like in their persecution and the little that they had, they, were, uh, they emerged as gold tried by fire. Paul says when he's writing to the Corinthians, he says, now, now I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done through the churches of Macedonia. They are being tested by many troubles and they are very poor, but they are also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity. I can testify that they gave only what they could afford, or not only what they could afford, but far more. And they did it of their own free will. Amazing. They, be, they begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing the gifts for the believers in Jerusalem. They even did more than we f- had first hoped or for their, uh, for their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us, just as God wanted them to do. You know, these Thessalonians were determined to follow Paul and Jesus in spite of their suffering. Paul and Silas, their stay in Thessalonica was cut short because of the riot which Jews, uh, the Jews staged when they were establishing this church, when they first went into Thessalonica. Uh, this visit was cut short friends were arrested the community were shouting accusations at them the government officials became uneasy and Paul and Silas escaped to Berea a neighboring city uh, at nighttime and with this background the church in Thessalonica undoubtedly suffered under suspicion and community unrest but the Holy Spirit gave them the joy and ability to receive the full message of Christ in spite of all of this Paul says, so you received the message with joy from the Holy Spirit in spite of the severe suffering it brought you. In this way, you imitated both us and the Lord. And this is a confirmation of what Jesus said when he says that um, when, if he suffers, you know, we can be assured that we will also suffer. He says, if the world hates you, remember that, the, that it hated me first. The world would love you as its own uh, if you belong to it, but you no longer are part of the world. We are no longer a part of the world. Like we have a different system that we live by. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me naturally, they will persecute you. And if they listen to me, they would listen to you. And as Paul later wrote in his letter to the Philippians, there, uh, his Uh, There's fellowship in suffering for Christ, a fellowship with Christ himself. And this brings the joy that's sustained by the Holy Spirit here. He says, I want you to know, to the Philippians, I want you to know Christ and experience the mighty power. I want to know the Christ and the experience in the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that in one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. That's quite a statement there that Paul gives. You know, someone has said uh, that humans have the freedom to choose who their master will be, but we do not have the freedom to choose no master. You know, we have a master. Who's our master? We need to ask ourselves that. It was not 
the thought of revival that excited these Thessalonians. It wasn't the signs of Jesus' uh, coming or his deliverance which interested these believers in Thessalonica. It was the person of Jesus. The son of the living God is what excited the Thessalonians. The relationship that they had with Jesus. He was the object of their hope and the focus of their attention. The return of Jesus is the source of hope for us as Christians for several reasons. At least it sure should be the hope of us. But Paul, the reason... uh, which Paul mentions here was that Jesus' deliverance of the saints from the coming wrath of God. The wrath of God that will be poured out on unrighteous people because of their failure to respond to Jesus' call. Listen to what Romans 1.18 says. He says, But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. As wickedness comes out in our faces, that's suppressing the truth, you know, and uh, there's going to be an, an answer to given for that. Jesus showed Paul how to live, and he even personally instructed Paul on how to live. And Paul lived, led, and taught by the example that he received from him. And in the same manner, the people, God, uh, people Paul taught along the way, those in churches that he planted, uh, they all got their signal from him. They could live by his example. As a result, you have become an example to all the believers in Greece throughout Macedonia and Achaia. You know, this is high praise from Paul. Paul calls no other church an example. He knew that they were God's chosen people. And the power of the gospel to bring about conviction and transform their lives is what really encouraged Paul. And he knew that the Holy Spirit was the source of that power. And the Thessalonians welcomed the message and their lives were transformed because of it. And in spite of their difficult circumstances and severe suffering, they had a joy that could only be supplied by the Holy Spirit. That's where our joy comes from. That's where our hope comes from. That's where our security comes from. That's where we have to lean. We have to get to know Jesus and make him the center of everything about our lives so that we're living in this, this peace and assurance that he wants to give us. They very quickly became imitators of Paul. They weren't slow on the uptake like me when I didn't have anything to offer these young people. These people, it says that they very quickly became imitators of Paul. And as a result, they became model believers, you know, all over the place. They were world-renowned. The apostle affirmed that these converts played an amazing part in the ever-widening scope of the Christian witness. They turned and they served the living God and they waited in anticipation for Jesus to come back from heaven. You know, like I was saying earlier, in this world that we live in, there's so many things. Especially, you know, like in our country. But I think it's, it is all over the world. You know, buying and selling and trying to get us to buy. Creating in us a discontentment. If our eyes are on that kind of stuff, we will be discontent. But our eyes need to be on Jesus where it says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We don't need to worry about stuff. There's so much of this stuff we don't even, we don't, just don't need. And uh, seek first his kingdom. But, you know, life has been good for us. For most of us. You know, there has been hard times. I, I, I get all of that. But living in this country, in this province, the time we've lived here, it has been pretty good. You know, but we need to think that we are called for a purpose. 
We're called to do what God has ordained each one of us to do in our sphere of influences because we're all in spheres of influence. We can all make an impact. We think that we're just one and it doesn't really matter. It matters. It matters, matters, matters. You know, if we save one who maybe it will influence many, but it doesn't matter whether it's one or it's a thousand. One matters. And so I want to close this and exhort you as God's holy people who are chosen by God to go and make a difference. You know, Peter says, you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And so I'm just going to have a stand, and I'm just going to close this in prayer. You know, God is so good to us. He just, uh, like, he tries to draw us in so much, such a variety of ways and through such a variety of people, circumstances, trials. He takes time to grow us in our faith. God is a good God and he loves his people and, you know, we've all been created for a purpose. I tell you, if you feel like there's no purpose in life, I've said it before, make an appointment, come and see me because there's a purpose for all of us. We have been created for a purpose. And if you haven't got time for that purpose, the God's purpose, you better adjust your schedule. You know, God can use you where you're at, but maybe that's not where you need to be. God can reveal that all to us. So Father, we thank you, Lord God. Oh Lord, that you've created each one of us for a purpose. Lord, you've designed us. You thought of us, Lord God, before you laid the foundations of the world. You have put us in this time, Lord God, in this place, Father, for a purpose. I pray that none of us, Lord, will be able to sleep, Lord God, comfortably until we're about your purpose, at least seeking you for what that purpose is. And I just pray, Lord God, that you would go with us. And I pray those that need encouragement, Lord, would be encouraged. Conviction, I pray for conviction. And I just pray, Lord God, that you would just move in our midst, Lord God. Let us never be comfortable with the status quo, but let us draw us, wake us up and stir us to know you better, Lord God, and to shine forth in this dark world, Lord God, the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. And I just want to encourage you, if you've never uh, experienced this assurance, that it's as simple as asking Jesus to come into your life and be Lord of your life. He says, you know, to come in, to repent of your sins and turn to him, give him your life. And then call the church. We've got ministries in the church to help you to grow in your faith. There's care cards in the pews. There's a, there's a button to click on the online. Just fill those care cards out. Like this stuff matters. If you're not serving in the church, you need to be serving in the church. Or at least we'll help you to serve where your passions are at. Maybe your passion is to serve outside of these walls in the community in some area. We want to support you in doing what God has ordained and called the purpose that he has for you. So as a church, we're here for you. You have no excuse to not be doing what God has called you to do. We as leaders will help you. You know, and pray with you that God would reveal to you what that purpose is. So go in, in peace as long as you're doing God's purpose. <laughs>